Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. You are tuned into our OITE review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. Now, if you have not already, there actually is an OITE companion book that goes along with this podcast, actually. And it, I mean, it really just goes right along with everything that we're saying in here. So if you want to uh, take a look at that or a visual learner, the link for that is going to be in the description. But nonetheless, we are continuing our foot and ankle OITE review. So without further ado, let's go ahead and keep it going. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Um, continuing on, does early weight bearing and mobilization after open reduction internal fixation of ankle fractures worsen their functional outcomes? Uh, no, it's actually associated with the opposite. It is associated with improved functional outcomes. So despite how cautious our patients tend to be, they don't really want to hurt it. They don't want their ankle to hurt. They don't want that discomfort. It's, I mean, mobilize, immobilize them in a splint for a week or two to let the soft tissues heal and the skin heal. But let them get out, let them start moving it, let them start rehab early because you don't want a stiff ankle because that's just going to make it worse for them down the road. So you you want to mobilize them early because they're going to have improved functional outcomes. So um, what are some of the potential complications when fixing ankle fractures? Yeah, anything when you're trying to get bones to heal, um, non-union, you can always have a non-union, uh, when, especially in, if you have a patient that's a smoker, you know, really, you know, bad host, you know, like a smoker, diabetic, a lot of medical problems, so-called non-compliance, non-union can be a problem. And the treatment for that would be you treat it with, you know, revision, open reduction, internal fixation, plus or minus some bone grafting. You have to determine what the etiology of the non-union is. Is it atrophic, hypertrophic, oligotrophic? And if you don't know what those are, go back and listen to our basic science uh, <laughs> lectures where we talk about that. Um, uh, you know, other complications could be a malunion, and this can be iatrogenic. Um, and things that are predictive of poor outcomes is when you have a large posterior medial mal in a very wide clear space. So those patients will do a little bit worse. Um, also, you can always have wound healing issues. You always worry about that. You can always get infected anytime you have any type of incision in the skin. And also post-traumatic arthritis. You know, there was that study um, that I probably should have pulled up by now uh, that shows any kind of um, uh, malreduction of the of the tibial tailor joint. Um, you know, any type of subluxation of the tibial tailor joint increases the contact pressures. Um, but you also just, again, these are all things you need to note and 
counsel your patients about and let them know like, hey, you know, we're going to do our best to line your ankle up and give you the best shot. But, you know, 10, 15 years down the line, you may have some pain in your ankle. You may have some ankle arthritis. It happens when you have patients that have these uh, these bad ankle fractures. Um, now, well, I, I briefly mentioned some of them, but just to reiterate the the point, what are some factors that lead to increased risk of complications in patients with ankle fractures? Uh, so obviously, I mean, you, you spoke about being a diabetic, you spoke about uh, the smokers, um, patients with chronic malnutrition, uh, elderly patients, um, non-compliant patients, ones that uh, I mean, they need to, uh, it's an unfortunate reality of our profession, the ones that need to get back out there and get their necks fixed. Unfortunately, I mean, they, they'll walk on it. They'll, they'll do some dumb things when, when they uh, either get high, get drunk, and they'll, they'll ruin everything that you worked hard on their ankle to fix. So um, just be cautious with those patients that one thing uh, we didn't really bring up, and I don't know if it'll necessarily be tested. It might be, but diabetic patients with uh, bimals, even if there is no syndesmotic instability, you're typically putting two or three syndesmotic screws in those patients just because their level of diabetic neuropathy will cause them to uh, have a more unstable ankle fracture and you need more fixation with those patients. Um, I also just brought up that that paper or, or one of the papers that was talking about that uh, tibio-tailor joint dynamics. Um, and they were talking about uh, if there was an average syndesmotic diastasis of 0.7 millimeters, so not even one millimeter, it's, you're not even going to pick that up on a fluoroscopy, probably, you get a 39% reduction in the tibio-tailor contact area, and you get a 42% increase in peak pressures. So that's what it was. That's, I mean, we're talking less than a millimeter off with the syndesmosis, you get a 40% <laughs> increase in peak pressures. Like that, that is why the best of the best probably do use that intra-op O-arm and get a, and get a CT spin because they understand that having a 42% increase in the peak pressure does damage to the cartilage. And especially if that patient is 30 years old and they have another 40 years of work in them and another 50 years of life in them, it's, it's going to cause ankle pain down the road. Yeah, totally agree. And, and one of the other studies that I failed to mention a little bit earlier, we were talking about early weight bearing status, post hope reduction, internal fixation of ankle fractures. There was a study published in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma in 2021, so last year, um, uh, titled, Does Early Weight-Bearing and Range of Motion Affect Outcomes in Operatively Treated Ankle Fractures? And this was a systematic review as well as a meta-analysis. So if you want to learn more about that, you can go and check out that, um, that article and then also the article that you were just mentioning, kind of that classic article uh, written by uh, Dr. Uh, Ramsey in 1976 uh, is changes in tibio tailor area of contact caused by lateral tailor shift. Um, but uh, continuing on, and, and that was a good point that you made about the, the diabetics uh, possibly needing more fixation and going ahead and 
um, stabilizing their synosmosis. I think in our, our very first episode with Dr. Uh, with Dr. Stewart, he mentioned that uh, that same exact concept in our diabetics, some may actually say they need a little bit more fixation. Um, but moving forth, what is a tibia plafon fracture? We're going back to the basics. Yeah, so uh, the tibia plafon is not an ankle fracture, although the tibia is part of the ankle. It is a much more different and usually a higher energy sort of injury. The tibial plafond is the distal articular surface of the tibia that interacts with the talus. Um, it's an intraarticular injury, and it's most commonly seen with axial loads, whereas the ankle fractures like the bimal, trimal, sort of ankle fractures are more seen with rotational injuries. Um, you're going to see these in car crashes, fall from height, uh, that sort of stuff. And uh, again, we talked about how they kind of fracture into their three most common uh, sort of bony fragments, which I'm sure we'll cover later, but I'll, I'll tell them again right now where you have the chaput, the bulkman, and the medial fragments. And so um, what is the uh, typical displacement direction of the ankle in plafond fractures with an intact fibula. Yeah. So this is going to be, um, like an axial load. Like typically when patients have these plafond fractures, it was a really good video and I don't remember where I watched it, but it was like a video of somebody driving and it's just showing like them getting into a car crash and showing the amount of axial load that went to the distal tibia that caused these like really bad um, pilon or tibiopon fawn fractures. Um, but it was just a really good video just showing like an axial load really causes these platform uh, fractures. And in, I guess in comparison to some of our ankle fractures uh, that we talked about, is there a commonly use classification system for all tibia plafond fractures? There really isn't. Um, the AO classification, if you understand the AO classification, it, it makes sense for every bone. Um, the tibia is, I think, bone four. The plafond is part three. And then there's A, B, and C, whereas A is simple, B is partial articular, and uh, C is uh, complete articular sort of injuries. And you may have attendings that, that want you to know that stuff or not, but there is a historic uh, classification called the Rudy Al Algauer. Um, what, what is the Rudy Algauer and, and uh, what sort of like uh, relationship does it have for plafond fractures? Yeah, so this is um, you know one of the original classifications uh, that was that was used to describe the tibial plafond fractures. Actually, a pretty good, interesting article if you go back and read it. I remember I read it um, a little while ago, and we we're just kind of looking at classic articles for tibia like for like pilon fractures. Um, but the Rudy Agar um, classification is divided into three types, and it depends on the amount of comminution as well as the displacement of the articular surface. Uh, so type one are gonna be non-displaced plafond fractures. Type two are gonna be displaced with minimal comminution. And type three, there's gonna be, as you probably guessed it, high displacement and high comminution. So fairly simple to remember. Um, and, um, and that is again, our Rudy Algauer 
um, classification for our plafond fractures. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. Now, when, you know, say we're trying to give advice to a first year or second year resident that is uh, finally getting called, you know, it's July 1st and they're back on primary call, they're getting their first call and, and they get called and say, hey, we have a patient here that has a tibia plafond fracture there in the motor vehicle collision. Uh, when they're performing a physical exam on these patients, what should we make sure that our, you know, our junior residents know and are paying attention to, or even the medical students when they're examining these patients with pilon fractures? Uh, the, uh, I kind of brought it up before, but these pilon fractures and ankle fractures are not the same. They involve the same areas of the bone, but these are much more high energy type of injuries. Um, so you really have to be cognizant of soft tissue damage. They, the fractures may not be open, but they can act similar to open fractures because of soft tissue injury. So um, obviously you're going to inspect the entire ankle all the way around because the last thing you want is to be presenting this patient uh, at, at fracture conference at 630 in the morning and they're first on the list for your trauma chief and you say that it's a closed wound but there is a small punctate wound over the <laughs> posterior medial or posterior lateral uh, ankle and and if you miss that then you are definitely going to be getting a phone call when you are sleeping away your <laughs> uh, post-call day so oh yeah um, yep it needs to be a circumferential uh, evaluation of the ankle looking for fracture blisters because uh, operating through fracture blisters has a high risk of wound contamination and wound breakdown and really any abrasions and areas of skin blanching and the areas of skin blanching you're looking for any sort of uh, skin tenting and uh, soft tissue injury where the bones are no longer subfascial they're actually they've broken through the fascia and they are impending open fractures and those are the ones that you don't want to send home uh, in a splint because they will show up two weeks later as an open fracture and you yep. want to make sure that you get a good reduction. And for, for these, um, one of the things that we were kind of taught is to not necessarily malreduce them, but you want to make sure that you relieve the soft tissue pressure first because they're going to get reduced in the OR anyway. So even if the reduction still looks like it's a little bit off, as long as you relieve the soft tissue uh, injury and the pressure on the skin, you're still doing that patient a favor. So the ankle may still look like it's in varus and it might look ugly on x-ray, but as long as all of the skin tenting is dealt with, 
that's a win at that point because they're going to get a proper reduction and a proper debridement and proper whatever else they need in the operating room. Um, and so uh, we know that there's this uh, big classification system for open fractures and uh, how they relate to soft tissue injury there, but um, there's also a classification for soft tissue injuries in closed uh, fractures. Uh, what is that classification and what's the grading system? Yeah, so this is the SHERN classification, and, and it's really important to evaluate the soft tissues. You know, our, our trauma guys and, and gals will say that the when there's a fracture, there is a bad soft tissue injury with a broken bone around it. So you really want to pay attention uh, to the soft tissues. So with our SHERN classification, we have grade zero to three. So grade zero are going to be our closed fractures without soft tissue injury, you know, relative. Every, every fracture has some type of, of a soft tissue injury. Um, our grade ones are when we're gonna have abrasions and contusions to the skin, as well as the subcutaneous tissues. Our grade two are, is when you're gonna have a deep abrasion as well as muscle involvement. And our grade three is gonna be extensive soft tissue damage as well as severe muscle injury. And again, this just lets you clues you into the severity of of their injury itself you know and a lot of times we'll, we'll say that uh, our x fixes when we're x fixing we're x fixing it also help rest the soft tissues um, just like you were just mentioning you know you just mentioned that that the that the bones may not look the best on the x-rays but the soft tissues are, are much better and i think that's our goal with uh, with our x fixes now I guess this is a, this is a question um, that for some reason used to get brought up a lot. I don't know if it still does, but should you get a CT scan of the ankle when assessing, uh, when assessing tibial plafond fractures? Uh, it's one of those where um, you have to kind of gauge <laughs> what, what the uh, ultimate plan is. If you think that this is a, I mean, let's say we're going back to like Rudy Algauer or we're using a simple AO classification and it's uh, non-displaced or minimally displaced and the, the ankle really doesn't look that bad. There's no open wounds. There's no fracture blisters. It's, it's not incredibly swollen, but it, it, it is a, a tibia plafond or a pilon fracture. Um, then you may want to get a CT scan prior to surgery. But if we're talking about high energy, 65, 75 mile an hour MVCs, a lot of displacement, fracture blisters, a lot of bruising around the ankle, um, just put that patient into a splint and plan for an X fix because you're gonna, you're not gonna wanna operate on those soft tissue anyways. And so once you get that X fix on, you can pull everything out to length. You can get a better idea of what's going on with the fracture pattern. And you may actually, it, it's better to get a CT scan after the X fix is in place, uh, just so uh, you're not looking at all of these fracture um, fragments in a kind of a compressed or an axial loaded situation. So if you think you're gonna fix it in the next couple of hours, get a CT scan. If you're, if you are going to X fix it, then get the CT scan afterwards. Um, and, uh, we know that this is an intraarticular fracture. It's high energy <laughs> most of the time. Um, are you going to non-op these patients? 
No, you know, not up treatment for these articular injuries, especially in the Buffon, is pretty rare. Um, you know, again, for the test, you know, I don't think I don't think that is going to be the answer. But just like you mentioned a little bit earlier, for ankle fractures, sometimes, you know, it, it, there may be an indication for non-op treatment in, you know, non-displaced fractures or non-ambulatory patients. But anybody with a displaced fracture, uh, tubular plafond fracture, you should fix. I think I remember in particular, we had a patient that was non-ambulatory, didn't have any feeling or movement. Um, you know, in his lower extremities that ended up having like a simple um, Buffon fracture um, for which we opted to do with non-operative because they're non-ambulatory, non, uh, non-sensate. And those patients, just a quick tidbit, actually present with kind of that autonomic dysreflexia. So they don't present with the pain because they're insensate, but they may present with other signs like, you know, sweating or increased heart rate. Those are kind of how those patients may present uh, in the emergency department instead of like our, our typical patients with these fractures. And it's not only of distal plafond, they may have a distal femur fracture or fracture anywhere, uh, but they these, these patients present a little bit different. Um, now, what are some treatment options for tibia plafond fracture? We already said we're not, we're not gonna non-op it. So what are some of our uh, treatment options and how should we kind of go about thinking about fixing these? Yeah, I think the main concept for the OITE and ABOS uh, is to understand stage management. So you might get a, an, an x-ray of a, a pilon fracture and you might get a picture of the ankle uh, clinically where it's not open, but you see some fracture blisters and all that. And the answers are going to be um, primary ORIF, uh, cast, uh X-Fix plus ORIF and all of this stuff. And so understanding stage management for plafond fractures is typically the kind of standard of care. So you're going to put them in an X-Fix for a week or two, and then you're going to do an ORIF uh, once the soft tissues have kind of declared themselves and you can understand where incisions are going to be the best and, and how to best manage those. There's a... Uh, not necessarily a controversy around this topic, but some will say that if the lateral soft tissues are okay, going ahead to fix the fibula at the time of the X-fix can help restore length and alignment to the tibia and may make the plafond fracture more amenable to fixation. Um, there's also a certain practice where if you have large articular fragments, um, you can X-fix and then percutaneously fix the articular fragments and hold them in place with lag screws prior to a more formal open reduction with a long either medial or anterolateral plate. Um, typically, ORIF is done with an anterolateral plate, a medial plate, or both, depending on the fracture characteristics. You will not be tested. They will not show you a pilon x-ray and ask you to de decide between an anterolateral plate or a medial plate that's it, that's getting too far into the weeds on uh, coming up with a general consensus about these fracture patterns. So don't worry about that sort of stuff, but just understand that staged management is the gold standard and you may uh, fix the fibula at the time of the initial surgery if soft tissues allow, but it's not necessary yet by any means.
Hey team, we hope that you enjoyed this episode. We t- broke down a little bit more foot and ankle, went into some pylon fractures and whatnot. Um, we hope you all enjoyed it. Please, again, if you have not already, hit the subscribe button and tell one person about this podcast and follow us on YouTube at uh, Nailed It Ortho. All right, those are three things, three very simple things always take less than two seconds to do. Uh, and until next time, 